Hello and welcome to season two of the HLAP podcast by the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project. My name is Ben Ho. I'm a three-year-old Harvard Law School and I'm your host. This season of the HLAP podcast is made possible by our sponsors, Cooley, Femic and West, and Oric. You're listening to our mini-series, Pivots and Personalities, where we interview current and former lawyers to learn about the critical career moves, passion projects, and other interesting stories. On today's episode, we speak to Alex Su, the head of community development at Ironclad, and of course, the producer of such great content about legal tech, big law culture, and more. We talk about Alex's journey from law student to his work today, how he started making content, what types of issues are resonating with his audience, and how the willingness to be vulnerable encourages others to do the same. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating on your podcast app and subscribe to stay up to date for the latest episodes. All right, let's get started. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the HLUP Podcast. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here, Ben. Awesome. Well, Alex, look, a lot of people tuning in today have watched your videos, but can you start by introducing yourself and tell us about what you do? Sure. I'm the head of community development at Ironclad. Uh, we're a digital contracting platform um, that's in legal tech. And you know, I started off by um, practicing law. I graduated from law school in 2010, spent six years as a litigator. I clerked for a judge. I worked at a big firm. And then somewhere along the way, I decided to make the jump into legal tech. That was probably 2016, six years out of law school. And I started off in sales. From there, uh, I started creating content on social media to help with my sales. And it led me to all sorts of different corners of the social media world, including TikTok, getting on TikTok during the pandemic in 2020. Uh, I ended up going viral a couple of times and built a following. So uh, what I do now on the community team, uh, it's a little bit of marketing, it's a little bit of sales, but it really is just engaging with the community through social media, but also through other channels. So uh, I love what I do. I think our company is is really doing some really interesting things in the in, in with legal and technology, and um, it's really given me a platform to speak about innovation and some of the issues that a lot of us talk about in the legal profession. That's awesome. So many things that I'd like to touch on later. But I wanted to ask you, you know, what did the Alex in 1L think he wanted to do? And what do you think he would say if you could go back and, and share what exactly you're doing today? When I was in 1L, I, I was laser focused on my career goal, which was to become a trial lawyer. Um, and mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of people and they told me, hey, you should try to be an AUSA, assistant U.S. attorney or a federal prosecutor. That seemed to be a really cool job. And, and that's the job I shot for. And, 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 you know, during 1L year, obviously, you know, you need to do well to, to, to get onto law review, to get a clerkship, uh, to get a job at a feeder firm for these positions. So I like mm. maniacally studied and tried to do well to, to gain entry into uh, this world where I could potentially get my dream job. What I didn't take into account was my own personality. I wanted to be a trial lawyer because I like working with people. I like persuading people. And what I didn't realize is that when you follow the career path, very often um, it takes you through jobs that you don't really, that are not really a good fit for you. So I went to a big firm right out of law school. I, I went to Sullivan and Cromwell in New York, and it wasn't a good fit. And after I clerked, I also spoke with my judge about what, what it was like to be an AUSA. And while it's a really good job for some people, I realized like, that was not exactly the job I wanted. I wanted to try cases, and I felt like being a federal prosecutor involved a lot of different work um, beyond just going to trial. And, and some of those things I don't think was a good fit for me. So, um, you know, somewhere along 
a few years out of law school, I really felt like it was time to to think about what else I should do, which was a little bit scary. But like, you know, it was nothing I ever imagined I'd be doing as a 1L. When I was a 1L, mm. I would have loved to be in a position to be at a great firm, which I was at, um, and to have had done a clerkship uh, because all that sets you up to get that job you want. But when you get there, uh, it might not be specifically what you wanted. So that, that's what happened to me. And I, I kind of had to to really think through like, what, what should I do next? Right. So the Alex and 1L wanted to be a trial lawyer. Where do you think that came from? Just talking to people, watching TV shows, and that just seemed like what lawyers do? I think that was a big part of it. I didn't know any lawyers. I come from an immigrant family and we didn't know any lawyers. So I, I, you know, I read a lot of John Grisham books. I watched a few good men. I watched TV. I watched suits, you know, like all those, I watch a lot of shows. Right. And, and maybe that did influence me in thinking that if I were to become a trial lawyer, I would become articulate. I would be very polished. I would be good at public speaking. These were all things that I aspired to be and, and, and what led me to go to law school. So, um, when I got there, when I, when I got into the practice, I realized it was nothing like that. So um, it's, you can't take everything from, from popular media. You got to kind of do your homework and talk to actual practicing lawyers. Absolutely. Well, you know, you said you went to SNC and you clerked, did all that, yeah. kind of got all the gold stars. You know, Alex, it takes a lot of courage to leave such a prestigious and well-paying job. Can you tell us about, you know, what, what made you make the decision to leave lawyering and what was the decision-making process like? Anything in particular that made you think, okay, it's time for a change? Well, it didn't come overnight. Uh, when I was at SNC, I was a fourth year. I had done the clerkship and I was like, okay, well, I don't think this is right for me, but I'm going to try something different. I considered going to another big law firm, but I realized I was like, some of the issues I have have to do with big law practice. And so maybe I should go to a smaller firm, which is what I did. I went to a, um, a plaintiff's firm. Uh, and that is where I, I learned about technology because that firm, uh, a much smaller firm that would go up against big law firms, um, mm. they adopted all sorts of technology that let them go like two lawyers versus 20 lawyers. They, they had a very wow. lean team. And so I, I saw the impact of technology and I thought it was really interesting. That job didn't really work out for me. And so the next step after that, I decided to open up my own solo practice, uh, which was quite an experience, which made me realize I actually really like talking to people and I really like sales and marketing um, almost more so than actually doing the grunt work of, of legal practice. And, and that to me was very eye-opening because, um, you know, very often early on in our careers, we do things that we're told to at our jobs. Because I was an entrepreneur, I had full control over what I did and I realized I gravitated to certain types of things. So, so this all took over the course of like maybe two or three years and I realized, okay, Here's what I know about myself. I, I like working with people. I like persuading people. I know a lot about this legal industry, uh, having been someone who used technology, bought technology for, for law firms. And so I thought legal tech might be a good place to make my pivot. Now, it was not easy. I think it was tough because, you know, I took a big pay cut. I started from the bottom at a startup. I, I went as an entry-level salesperson. But there were a few things I think that helped, which was like, number one, uh, I could afford it financially. I paid off my debt and I, I saved up some money. Um, number two, I already knew kind of what I was good at and bad at. And so I felt like it was a, it was, I had a hunch that this job would be a better fit for me, which ended up proving not to be true. But third, and possibly most importantly, is that I encountered so many failures, like the plaintiff's firm I worked at. I was fired from that job. Uh, the solo mm. practice I had, 
that didn't work out. I had to shut down the business. And so I had gone through all these failures realizing that, you know, that I had to do something. I needed momentum. And so I took a job that was small, that I had a hunch that I could be good at. And that led me into this entirely separate space that, that I never imagined I would enter into, like legal technology. Right. No, th- thank you for sharing all of that because I feel like a lot of us law students tend to be risk averse. You know, we try to avoid the things <laughs> that we don't likely succeed at. Yeah. And, you know, you're giving us such a great example that, hey, listen, it's not like you're see- we're seeing all the success right now, but it's not necessarily, you know, zero to 100. There are a lot of pivots along the way and a lot of, it's like a journey of self-discovery, right? It is. And, and I don't think it's true that um, you necessarily have to leave law or go on social media or do what I did. You know, I speak mm-hmm. to a lot of partners too. And, and if you hear the stories of how people make partner at big law firms, their stories are often very similar. Like they had to make pivots, they encounter setbacks, um, and nobody really talks about it. So you think it looks like really smooth, but um, it's actually very rocky and confusing and winding until you you make it kind of to success. And then once you've made it, um, and again, these are partners, these are GCs, these are very successful people. When they look backwards, there's like a neat little story. But, but when you're going through it, there's a lot of ups and downs and you're not always sure about where it's all headed. Wow, that's really good. So the larger picture looks like there's this nice trajectory, but yes. really in, when you're in the process, you're just in the trenches, really. Absolutely, absolutely. Sounds a lot like 1L, really. <laughs> I know, it's, it's, it's a common theme, right? But for everybody, it's, it's 1L. Yeah. It's when you look for clerkships, if you, you know, look for jobs, it's you know, um, being at a place like HLS or any other top school, you kind of have a lot of advantages, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Absolutely. So, you know, Alex, let's talk about legal tech. Yeah. What is legal tech? You know, who does it serve and where does Ironclad fit into this space? So legal tech is any technology that's used by lawyers uh, or legal professionals. It's a pretty broad category. And, you know, I think it's more interesting to think about it in terms of what do lawyers do often, right? Um, I started off my legal tech career in e-discovery. It's very esoteric. It's very niche. It's part of the litigation process or doc review process. And and that's very narrowly legal tech. But there are other types of technology that applies to legal that's not just legal. And that's what I do at Ironclad. We're in the business of automating contracts or the contracting process. And one thing I've learned is that even though I'm using legal tech as a label for, for Ironclad, what we do is like, something that applies to legal departments, but also procurement departments, sales departments. It's just contracts. And a lot of people in a company touch contracts. So, so mm. what I do now is a bit more expansive, even though, you know, when I talk to lawyers or, or legal professionals, I say legal tech. Um, a lot of the work that lawyers do touch upon so many different people. And you, 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 uh, using the word legal tech might be a little bit restrictive, but... To take it all the way back, when I think of legal tech or this space, I think of anything that touches what a lawyer or legal professional does, often involving documents, um, anything that automates that or, or makes it digital, that's legal tech. Oh, so kind of like doing away with, or okay, sorry, automating all the parts that can be automated so that you can focus on the more interesting things. That's right. That's right. And you know, when you look at something like a fax machine, which is like archaic technology, mm-hmm. Once upon a time, that was legal tech. You could describe that as legal tech or um, email or a phone. These are all things that lawyers use, but um, their applications are broader. And so, you know, for Ironclad, uh, we've recognized that contracts do imply a lot of law because there's a, in the contract itself, there's a lot of legal language. 
But um, mm-hmm. the way that contracts are used by other departments makes it so that it's such a vital part of the work that a company does. There's contracts with employees, there's contracts with customers. Um, what we're trying to do at Ironclad is kind of revolutionize and digitize all of that work. Hmm, very exciting. Well, can you tell us about this transition from big law lawyer to legal tech? You know, what were some of the major challenges you had to adjust to? And is there anything you miss about your old job, if at all? <laughs> I, there is a lot I miss about the old job. Um, I think that the subject matter of what you do can be the same. Like, so, you, you know, so I, could, so I could work in law, right? But within law, I could be practicing law, like writing memos or descriptions of regulations. I could mm. go to court and make arguments all day, like a public defender or, or prosecutor. Um, I can also be a corporate lawyer to, that, that, that guides and advises um, a business in helping it go public. So law is very broad and expansive. It's not always tied to you know, what you do specifically on a day-to-day basis. So for example, a salesperson working in law, um, you're still dealing with legal stuff, like legal subject matter, but you're, you're almost like, you, your job doesn't look like that of, a, of a, some, an analyst, for example, or like a, an associate, for example. Like I realized like when I went into legal tech sales, my job on a day-to-day basis was more similar to a partner at a big law firm. Even if I didn't make anywhere near as much as they did, the job itself of like trying to find clients, trying to do business development, finding ways to like go to conferences or write papers and get your name out there to, to bring in business. Um, there's a lot of similarity between a salesperson and a partner. And yet a salesperson could be in legal tech dealing with law, but also could be in fintech dealing with finance or uh, healthcare mm. tech. So. So I do think that um, you've got to set aside the difference between the subject matter or the industry you're in versus the function or job you hold. That's interesting. So you shared earlier about the series of pivots you made, solo practitioner, et cetera. Was there a moment then that you were like, okay, legal tech, that's the place I need to be in. Like, how did you know? The truth is I, don't, I, I never had full certainty before I got into it. Mm. But as I dipped my toe in, I started to see and learn things that, that I think outsiders didn't. Um, the first moment I considered it was when I was at that plaintiff's firm, I saw that they adopted all these different technologies. They adopted cloud-based e-discovery, and this was in 2014, 2015. Um, no one, no, very few law firms were using cloud software. Many of them are now. Um, they also did remote depositions for, you know, low stakes, uh, witnesses. And, and they were, and, you know, that was before, way before the pandemic. So, so they were doing all this stuff that involved technology. And I was like, you could really have an impact. You could really, with technology, mm-hmm. do some crazy stuff that, that I had never seen in big law. Like in, in big law, we didn't have, we didn't, you know, we were not early adopters of technology. So we didn't, I didn't see lawyers doing that. So that was the moment that I thought of it. And then being in the Bay Area, I, I saw how other industries were being transformed by technology, um, other businesses specifically. And so I thought, hey, maybe if I get into this little niche, I could carve out a space for myself. And I never imagined that it would take off in the way that it has. Uh, it's grown a lot ever since 2016 when I first got in. Oh, yeah. I mean, on that note, certainly we, we see a lot of your videos making fun of lawyers who are sort of reticent to change. So maybe we can go there right now. Yeah. Right. So your, your videos, Alex, again, many of us here today are tuning in because like, we've seen your videos. We subscribe to your channels. Let's start there. How did you start doing this? And did you begin with any particular goals in mind? Um, the goals were very broad in the beginning, but 
you know, I had by this time, uh, by the time I got on TikTok and made videos, um, I had been posting on LinkedIn more serious content about my career journey for probably four years. Mm. This was in 2020. Yep. Uh, the pandemic had hit and I thought, well, um, everybody's locked in. Uh, you know, everyone's on social media. Well, maybe I can do something different and interesting. So the first thing I did was I used Zoom to record myself in a skit. Um, I used mm. Zoom to record the video and I used iMovie because it was free on your laptop. And so I created this s- silly skit. Um, that skit did well when I posted it on LinkedIn. And as I posted more of these skits, someone said um, in the comments, hey, you should check out TikTok. Now, I didn't know anything about TikTok. Um, I think my wife mm. had told me about it. And she said, it's like, teenagers dancing, lip syncing. And I was like, that's not my, that's not what I'm about. I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. That's not what I want to do. But, but what happened was um, I started to get more messages about getting on TikTok, people suggesting me to get on TikTok. And these were not from teenagers. They were from GCs. They were from in-house counsel. They were wow. from law firm partners. So I started to sense that TikTok was growing. And again, this is late this is fall, summer of 2020, uh, so about two years ago. Mm. And so um, I, the first thing I did was I started playing around with the app, and I realized it was much easier to, to make videos with this app. And so I started mm. to make them and then repost them on LinkedIn uh, without any real goal. I think I, I think I had in, in the back of my mind that it could be good for marketing, but I just wanted to have fun with it. Uh, my fourth video on TikTok went massively viral, like more than I could ever imagine, because I had no followers on TikTok. I was just using it as a video app, like a video editing app. Most of my followers on, were on LinkedIn. But because I went so viral, I overnight suddenly had all these followers, and I was like, maybe I'll just keep doing this. And then over time, I've been able to refine my content to, to touch upon a lot of themes around technology, change in the legal industry. I, talk, I, I sometimes post about diversity or mentorship, um, but, but it all started just kind of on a whim and accidentally going viral, which is true for many of us who were on TikTok in 2020. That's awesome. Seems like it was just the right time too for to ride this trend and, and the wave. That's but let's actually go there. You know, what what kind of subjects and issues are resonating with your audience and why do you think that's the case? I think the most popular content has to do with making fun of the legal profession and specifically the hierarchy that exists within the law firm world. So uh, I can give you a couple of examples like um, paralegals often feel underappreciated and don't get the respect that they deserve from some of the lawyers, especially the junior lawyers who don't realize who really is valuable and has power within a firm. So that, that first video I told you like that went viral. It was a joke about a first year mm-hmm. associate not respecting a paralegal uh, that resonated with people. Mm-hmm. Other examples, uh, I make fun of partners a lot. Um, they always say you, you got to punch up not down. And so partners, you know, they make the most money, they have the most influence, and they often are most disconnected from reality. Uh, and, and so they're easy targets for me to make fun of. And then finally, I would say, uh, perhaps more, most relevantly, I, I make fun of the law school hierarchy. I make fun of Harvard specifically a lot. Um, you know, I, 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 it's a lot of people like the jokes that I make about Harvard. Um, and I've, oh, I've been very impressed by the Harvard uh, students themselves who find them really funny too. Um, I make jokes because I think that in the legal profession, there is a huge premium on what school you went to even years after you graduated. And a lot of people feel, um, you know, they don't like it. And so, uh, a lot of that type of content does, does seem to resonate with people. Oh, 
Wow. Okay. You brought him up. We're <laughs> obviously going to talk about the Harvard kid. Uh, yeah. I was going to ask, you know, why you thought, why you think it'd be so, he, it's so successful. It's because people want to make fun of Harvard for sure. But, you know, Alex, I'm almost hesitant to ask, but I really want to know, how do your real life interactions with Harvard grads compare to this caricature? It's so funny because um, I had this perception of Harvard kids before I actually started to work closely with many of them. Um, and mm -hmm. my perception was probably more similar to what I post in the videos. I have found Harvard, mm -hmm. uh, Harvard graduates, especially Harvard Law School. I, I, I don't talk to too many Harvard college um, people, but HLS folks, you know, whether it was at Sullivan and Cromwell and other places in law, I, I've worked with many of them. You all are um, obviously incredibly bright, but also um, self-effacing. Like, so like people are <laughs> not insufferable like the way that I portray. Harvard College, on the other hand, that may be a different story. I think people who are in <laughs> HLS, they're probably, they probably, they're older, they've probably seen a couple of things and a lot of them come from different backgrounds. Um, but but the, the joke that I make in the videos is called quote unquote near Boston. There is this um, mm -hmm. almost false humility that many Harvard kids exhibit. Um, and by the way, this is not limited to Harvard. I went to Northwestern and you know I found myself guilty of saying, I went to school near Chicago sometimes. That's also the, 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 the <laughs> second level meta joke that I, a lot of people do this, right? I went to school near Durham, you mm -hmm. know, for Duke kids. Um, everyone says it. Now, the reason why I think it resonates is because um, many of us who have dealt with um, people who have really strong academic backgrounds, uh, there's humility and then there's false humility. And I think that people are mm. attracted to real humi humility uh, if you're self-deprecating, if you are humble about the way you would go about working with people, people like that. There is this like false humility that people hate. Um, and it's not true. It's, it's true of Harvard, the Harvard kid, but it's true of all lawyers, really. Like a lot of lawyers um, exhibit this false humility. Like look on, look at the, the jokes people make fun of on LinkedIn. Like I'm so humble to mm -hmm. announce. And then they talk about where they are. They're <laughs> summering, right? Are you really humbled? Yeah. You're not. It's false humility. So so that flipping that on its head has given me um, ideas on on my video content, and and I'm guided by what people like, and and for whatever reason, people love making fun of Harvard or laughing at Harvard and laughing at false humility. So that's why I keep doing it, and uh, you know keep you know making those types of jokes gets me opportunities like jumping on coming onto this platform and this podcast to speak with you. So right. uh, I might just keep doing it. <laughs> I mean, that's so good. I, I, I love what you said about the false humility. I, I certainly hate it when people say, oh, I go to school near Boston. Like, all right, <laughs> we get it. Or I go to school in Cambridge. I wonder which one. I wonder really. which one. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, I saw that you introduced the Yale kit the other day. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. really excited to see what you do. But something tells me that the Yale kit's not going to be as universally hated as the Harvard kit. So, <laughs> okay. So, so I'm not, I'm not trying to just say this because you, you go to Harvard, but because Harvard has a ubiquitous name. I don't think Yale has that mm -hmm. same level of um, recognition among people. I do think that Yale law in the law world does get that recognition, but, mm -hmm. but everyone gets the Harvard bomb. There's an H bomb. There's no Y bomb. It's an H bomb. Uh, wow. So, so I mean, it's, it's, it's funny and I'm sure that, you know, maybe you'll replay this for your, your, your Yale friends, but there is a certain level of recognition that Harvard gets that's separate from everyone else. By the way, Ben, that's why I like to make the jokes about Harvard, because if I make a joke about Yale or MIT or Caltech, they don't land the same way. Right. I certainly agree. And I'm going to stop here in case I say anything I regret. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> All right. So, you know, Alex, on a more serious note, I, I got to say your, your TikToks are very popular, uh, not just because they're funny, but 
I think like I find two things in particular very inspiring. You know, one is your content, you know, very clearly and consistently strikes a chord with your audience. And more importantly, I think it seems to me that you really managed to do it in a way that expresses your authentic voice. Can you talk about this latter part in particular? How do you manage to do that, you know, and, and so consistently, frankly? Uh, I feel very lucky um, because I do think that not everyone has that opportunity because the, the reason why I'm able to, to say things that other people aren't able to say and have the authenticity is because I don't have much left to lose in the legal profession. I was fired from a job. I left big law. I started a practice that was not successful. I have a pretty dirty, like messed up resume. And, and that enabled, you know, even though that kind of sucks, like when I, you know, when I have to go see friends and family or like have reunions and I see my successful friends, what that meant was that I no longer had that burden of, of projecting an image of success. And I think this is something wow. that maybe some of, um, some folks who go to Harvard or who go to other top schools, um, can really relate to, like, even though you are successful, you're, you're always trying to protect it and, and you're very curated in how you talk about things. I have the freedom to say a lot of things like I can roast big law, which that's why it resonates with people because everyone knows it's true. No one says it because everyone's afraid. Everyone's afraid of offending somebody. Um, I do it. And, and, you know, sometimes I do cross the line uh, early on in my content journey. I, I did probably cross the line a bunch of times. But like I said, I had nothing mm -hmm. to lose. And so over time, as I listened to how people responded to it, I was able to kind of almost dial in to a specific wavelength so that I wouldn't cross the line in the future. So what you're seeing today is really the product of me doing this for a long time and not having much to lose. Um, there are lessons for people who do have things to lose. And I think that what the lesson is that these days um, with social media and social media is good and bad and, 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 and you know, it's, it's double-edged. The bad of it is that, you know, fake news propagates, you know, you have these closed-minded tribes that get together and get radicalized. And, you know, there's a lot of bad things that can come from that. The good thing is that mm. it brings people together who previously didn't realize how much they had in common with one another. When I first started writing, oh. writing uh, on LinkedIn about my career journey, I talked about how, like, I, I was not that great of an associate, right? Um, I was not very detail-oriented. And I think a lot of lawyers are afraid to admit that. But when I admitted that, Lots of other people were like, hey, me too, me too. And so it, mm. social media had this you know, ability to bring people together to give us the confidence to talk about things that previously we were afraid to. And, and that touches upon things like diversity in the profession, mental health, uh, return to the office, how work is done. It, it's a lot of subjects, right? It's not just technology. So, yeah. so I think that that has, that has helped me. I've ridden this wave where now I think people are in, in the profession are more or far more honest and open about what it's like to be a lawyer than they were five, 10, or even, you know, even a few years ago. Well, that's really good. Uh, so many follow-ups. So Alex, I think my, my first encounter for one of your posts was on LinkedIn. And I really appreciated how willing you were to be vulnerable because LinkedIn is typically a place where people carefully curate their professional presence. And sometimes to the point of, I'm not even sure if this is satire anymore. You mentioned earlier, I'm so humble to, yeah. right? But I think it takes a lot of courage to, to be vulnerable in such a space. And you're one of the first people that I saw do it. Uh, can you tell me about, you know, what motivated you to do that? And how have people been responding? I mean, I think it started, I dipped my toe in the water and then I kind of put more and more into the water, so to speak. Like in the beginning, it was about me talking about my struggles as an associate. I knew that a lot of people felt this way. So it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was a big risk. Um, even if some people, like if I'm an associate who's trying to make partner, I would never write that publicly. 
But once I saw the reaction, you know, I, I, I come from it from a position of selling to legal. I'm in the legal tech space. So I have the liberty to say things about myself that might not be as easy to say if I was still practicing. So I think that over time, I realized that I could, I could speak more about my weaknesses and, and the, the challenges I've faced. Also, part of it was selfish. It was that I felt like I was carrying this burden. You know, I would always have to explain to people why I left law. Um, if I could just speak honestly on it, it, it is who I am. And if, if in the future, if people want to work with me, they will want to work with me knowing my whole self rather than, you know, the cherry picked best version. So, so I thought that that being um, open about weaknesses would, would almost filter out opportunities for me uh, that may only made sense for me. And, and incidentally, you know, that's how I got my job at Ironclad. Uh, they reached out to me knowing all the pros and cons about me, knowing all the good and the wow. bad. So, so I didn't have to worry about how I would present myself. I can be my authentic self. Oh, that is such an interesting take. And, you know, I bring this up because so much of what we do in the law, or I guess like the legal profession is highly formalized, is practiced in environments that don't really encourage individual expression. Yet here you are doing what you're doing, getting such huge following. And, you know, you're going after all the unflattering parts of big law. And this is just so cool. You know, I saw that you posted an Instagram story the other day that said, my favorite part about posting on LinkedIn is when big law partners show up in the comments to tell me how and why I'm wrong. Makes me nostalgic for my associate days. I just thought that was so great. I mean, look, I, I was a summer associate. I was an associate and there were probably good reasons why I was told I was wrong. I don't think I was, like I said, I was a good associate, I felt, but I, I made a lot of mistakes. And being able to make fun of myself, I think also opens, you know, opens up the conversation. Like that's the other thing about my content, which is that when I, when I make fun of myself about some of these things, it encourages other people to share. And it turns out a lot of people have had that experience of like being at a firm and being told they're wrong constantly by people who might not be right. So, so that's why that, that, that particular post that you mentioned was, was extremely popular on Twitter, was extremely popular on Instagram. So I, don't know, wow. I might just keep posting that kind of stuff. Yeah, that certainly you, you've sort of encouraged people to come forward and talk about these experiences. So thank you for that. And Alex, I'm very curious to hear as well, how has your relationship to your work product today changed from when compared to when you were a lawyer doing the things you were doing? If I were to identify the, the main, chain, main difference, it's that um, when you're in law, you are encouraged to put together the absolute perfect work product before you share it with others. There's good reasons for that because if you send out something that's sloppy, it might lose trust of the partners, the clients, and so forth. What I do now mm -hmm. is more put together something quickly, put lots of things together quickly, and put them out into the world to get feedback. Um, sometimes my content comes, you know, comes across really well because I did it, you know, I, I did a first version of it that was bad. People roasted me for it, and I took that feedback and then I incorporated it into the next version. Um, a lot of what you see uh, on, you know, that goes viral or on LinkedIn, it, it's the evolution of building content in public. So, so I think mm. those are the two main differences between practicing law and what I do now in terms of making content. Now, there are similarities in that, you know, when I post Twitter posts or when I create captions for my TikToks, you have to be very, a very good writer because you got to word things concisely and not in a complex way. So I spent a lot of time thinking about my captions because, um, mm. 
I, I have to think about the, the reader, the viewer. I think that's very similar for legal writing. You always want to be thinking about the reader. So, so there are similarities too. Wow, that's, that's great. I, so there is, there, your legal profession has, your legal background has helped a little bit here, but at the same time, you have more liberty to really do yeah. what you want to do earlier to get feedback. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, maybe we can transition to our final segment, which is advice for law students, Alex. So many of our listeners tuning in today are law students who are just starting their 1Ls or just upperclassmen who have made their decisions about where they're going next summer. What advice do you have for them as they begin their legal careers? It's hard to give general advice, but I would say um, keep doing what you're doing, but also don't forget to pay attention to your strengths and weaknesses. Uh, this is mm. especially true for those of us who are earlier on in our careers who might not have had a diverse set of ex work experiences to understand what we're good or bad at. When I went into law, I didn't really have a good sense of my weaknesses. Six years in, I had a very good sense of my weaknesses, which also told me a little bit about my strengths. And so when I made that career pivot, when I was in my mid, you know, early to mid thirties, I was able to make a better career decision because I knew where I fit in. A lot of younger up and coming lawyers make decisions based on established career paths or maybe what a parent or a relative says you should do, maybe somebody older. And I think that that can be tricky because first of all, they don't know how you are. Uh, they don't know your, your, your strengths and weaknesses, but also their advice is based on a world that existed in the past. Like I remember when mm. I was growing up, I was told, don't play video games. You can't make any money for it from it. And yet people are making lots of money on Twitch. They said, memorize the multiplication tables because you can't carry a calculator with you everywhere. Now we have iPhone calculator apps. So, so I think that these well-meaning advice that you get um, is often bad because it comes from a world that no longer exists. And so the best way to fight that is to understand who you are and just kind of go in the direction and follow your hunches because in law specifically, we are always taught to look to the past to make our decisions. And I think sometimes you've got to just understand yourself and do something off the beaten path. Um, that's the advice I would give. Well, that is so good. And you know, this is a great way to follow up my next question, which is what advice do you have for them when it comes to finding their authentic self? Like, how do you find a way to express your authentic self even in the legal career? There are a lot of ways to find your community within the legal profession. Mm -hmm. For example, um, it could be through a common shared hobby. It could be through uh, an affinity group, could be through anything really, like where, you know, maybe where you live. I think these communities are so important because they give us the confidence to, to be more authentic. Like for me, I, I, I grew up in an immigrant community. I have always felt comfortable, comfortable around Asian people. Um, and so that community for me was where I was most authentic early on in my life. As I got older, I found other communities, um, specifically the innovation community, the technology community. Um, uh, there are some communities that are, that are related to legal tech sales that I'm a part of. So like there's all these micro, micro communities and I think that they give me the confidence to, to speak more authentically. And if when you speak authentically, just know that, yes, some people will make fun of you for it. So yes, you'll get some haters. But often these people were never going to help you anyways. That's the big insight that I had that, you know, at first I was like, I'm afraid to say something because so-and-so, this, you know, invisible boogeyman might, might hate on me for it. But then I realized they weren't going to help me anyways. But instead, if I, if I speak authentically, there are people who, who didn't realize that they had a lot in common with me 
they might actually turn out and help me and, and, you know, find me opportunities and, you know, just be really good to me. So, so that I think is, is the advice on authenticity, like find your tribe and your community mm. and, and, and draw strength from them. That's really good. So find your people and be really honest about what it is that, you know, inspires you and don't be afraid to lean in all the way then, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So Alex, I'm going to throw a curveball at you because it's something I've been thinking about yeah. for myself. You know, we're, we're all strivers. We're always looking for the next big thing, especially, you know, in law school. How do you know that you've made it? You know, uh, or perhaps, you know, what, what does success look like for you? I think um, this is a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer. And I think that some people find their entire lives without or, or go their entire lives without finding it. And I, I you know, I, I think that I'm probably going to be like that. But there are phases. And so I think when I was younger, the phase was, will I find a good job? That was like, the definition of success. Um, I, I've moved past that, right? Because I think that um, I, I don't worry about that anymore. The second one was, okay, can I actually sell something? Uh, you know, and if you think about like the trajectory of a, of a big law partner, for example, you know, when you move up from being an associate to a partner, it's not about necessarily where you work anymore. It's about which clients did you bring in? Which, what did you do for business development? So I think phase two was selling. Like, am I successful at selling something? Um, I, that's where I am right now. I, I think I've seen some success being someone who can source business through social media, through my presence, through my platform. Um, you know, today I have over 200,000 followers across different platforms. And so I, I don't, for me, it's, it's not a treadmill of trying to get more followers because um, I do think that chasing fame, uh, especially social media clout, can be unhealthy. So, so for me, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I build a, a better connection with, with the audience that I have now. The final frontier for me, I think, is, is hard and amorphous, but I think is, is really important, which is how do I have a voice? How, do I, how does my voice impact the broader community or the broader industry? You know, I, I started off as somebody who really didn't have a voice, who was trying to just make it in this world and, and make money um, and have a good job. But I'm at the point where I think what I post online does have an impact on GCs, on law firm leaders on uh, a lot of people who, have, who are influential in our world. How do I shape my voice to have an impact there, um, I think is the next frontier. Uh, and as, you, as, you know, as you'll note, like, my goals are not measured by you know, what job titles I have or, or money because um, I, I, I was like that when I was younger and I feel like that's a, that's a tricky road to go down because there will always be someone with more money than you. There will always be someone more prestigious than you. Um, if you measure yourself by those those rulers, then that's that's just a, a life full of you know that 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 can that can create a life of unhappiness and dissatisfaction. So having your own inner scorecard about what you're trying to accomplish is so important and something I've you know really recognized as I as I approach forty. So I mean that that that, that would, yeah, that's what I would say. That's really great advice. So it's you know it sounds like you started by learning how to create your own voice and and honing it, and now you're at the point of. How do I, you know, refine it so that it's making the right impact, landing the right way? That's right. And, and you know, that's why the advice to, to 1Ls, to, to law students is, you know, in the beginning, you need to set that foundation, uh, which means finding the right career opportunity, finding the right job. That is what you should focus on. Over time, as you start to see success, um, you will build a foundation for yourself to do greater things. And, and I think that those quote unquote greater things doesn't mean that you're going to be like, making tens of millions of dollars per year as a partner or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever society tells you is successful. It's going to be 
based on what you define. And, and that's the hardest part to generalize because um, early on, everyone chases the same things. But as we get older, we, we start to look for things that are, that are more meaningful to us you know, uniquely. So um, for, for the people listening, I would say just, just focus on, on finding the right career opportunity, which will open doors. And, and, and then as you move on, uh, think through what you want out of all this. Right. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. If you could go back to yourself in law school, knowing everything you know now, is there anything you'd have done differently, wish you knew back then? Yeah, I think I wish I would have been more open to different experiences. I was so focused on being an AUSA, so focused on being a litigator that I did not pause to, to see what other opportunities uh, were around me. Um, I got a job at SNC. Uh, it's a great program for litigation, but it's also a great program for M&A. I don't know why I never tried any M&A work. Um, I look back and I'm like, I wish I did. I, I shouldn't have been so tied to the plan that I had created for myself. Uh, so, so looking back, I wish I tried different things, maybe something entrepreneurial, maybe something weird that's kind of off the beaten path. Um, and who knows, I might have been able to find my place much more quickly. That's awesome. Thank you for that. I, I think that's just such great advice for so many of us listening in right now, because we're just trying to find our way, right? As we go through law school and graduate, move on to the next path. Yeah. But so Alex, what's next for you? You know, what are your, some of the projects you're really excited about? Well, this year, um, I was so focused on understanding, okay, I have a social media platform. Does that translate into the real world? And so this year I've been spending a lot of time meeting people. Um, so in a few weeks, I'm going to be headed to Napaba the uh, National mm. Asian American uh, Bar Association Conference. Um, it's just a series of, the latest in a series of in-person events. And I think uh, it's taught me that the social media world, while it does touch the real world, it's also still important to have one-on-ones and meet people. And so that to me was the next frontier. Like how do I build a relationship with, with lots of different people? As for my uh, general career moving forwards, I don't spend too much time thinking about um, like, titles, jobs, and things like that. But I think, where, where do I bring value to this community and where do I fit in? And so uh, I hope to continue spreading the word about Ironclad um, for technology, for lawyers, but also just um, delivering a message of change and reform for our profession, which is uh, really behind a lot of other industries. So I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep TikToking, uh, creating content and uh, having a lot of fun. That's awesome. And you know what, before we go, um, can you, like, would you like to share with our listeners how they can follow you, you know, go ahead and plug your, your handles. I'd love to get this out. I have handles on all the major uh, platforms, but, um, I think the best way for lawyers and law students to connect with me is to go through LinkedIn, find me on LinkedIn. I'm Alex Sue. Uh, I also have a Substack newsletter where I go in depth about my, um, about my journey. Uh, you can subscribe to that, but, but LinkedIn is probably the first place. From there, you'll be able to find all my other accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, uh, and TikTok. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much. What a fun discussion. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. This is a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to season two of the HLEP podcast, proudly brought to you by Cooley, Fenwick and West, and Oric. We'd like to thank our sound engineer, Joe Blim, and Alex Sue for taking the time to share his journey with us. Join us next time for another episode from our mini series, Pivots and Personalities. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thank you and see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project, an officially recognized Harvard Law School student organization. 
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University.